Hi, and thank you for tuning in to Compound Performance Radio. We're your hosts, Matt Domney and Kyle Dobbs. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the show. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Compound Performance Radio. Today with us, we have Lisa Lewis, and we also have our original co-host, Kyle Dobbs, back. We decided after having a couple episodes with Craig that firing him was the wrong decision, and we've decided we begged, pleaded, Kyle, would you please come back and host a podcast with us? And he said, you know what? Maybe just this one time I'll do it. We'll see how this episode goes. And today we have a great guest with Lisa Lewis. So Lisa, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, if you want to take a moment to introduce yourself, that would be awesome. Sure. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And um, I am a psychologist and a therapist by trade. So since 2002, I just recently realized it's coming up on 20 years, I have been practicing working with people one-on-one -on -one or in groups to help them change or level up or grow or make themselves better in some way. And I've worked in a variety of different settings. So my bachelor's and master's degree is in clinical psychology. At the beginning of my career, I worked in psychiatric hospitals and community mental health and inpatient detox units, and then worked in outpatient substance abuse for a long time, grabbed a specialty in addiction counseling uh, there. And then I went back to school and got a doctoral degree in counseling and sports psychology, which is kind of the other end of the mental health spectrum. It's working mm. with people who don't necessarily have a quote unquote problem, but they want to improve themselves in some way. So instead of working with that person to correct pathology or a mental illness, working with that athlete or that ass kicker, basically, to try to help them do their thing better or to leverage their strengths to improve themselves. So what I love most about that journey is that I've gotten to work with every kind of person that there is at every point along the spectrum of how they're functioning. And that I really think is one of the, the best things about working in psychology is there's so many different things you can do and so many different ways that you can interact with people. Um, but really what I like to do is help people change and grow and evolve themselves whether that's athletically speaking, professionally speaking, in their relationships, or even just within themselves, their own psychology and, and people getting to know their own mind. So um, currently I have a private practice in LLC where I see some people who are working to correct issues. I see some people who are just athletes and high performers who are working to improve their performance at work or in the gym, in their sport. Um, I work with some people who have issues with addiction and then in my consulting part of my work, um, I've done a little bit of help with some startups, but I do a lot of work working in the fitness space and doing continue, continuing education, uh, with personal trainers, chiropractors, physical therapists, people who help people change, uh, nutrition coaches is another big niche area. Um, and my focus in there is helping coaches coach more effectively by using psychological strategies and counseling strategies really to help people help themselves or to help people get out of their own way. Um, I think most people who are listening and, and many personal trainers have shared with me over the years, once I know the X's and O's and I know program design, really my success, my client success, their results and client retention really orbits around my ability to understand my clients, to motivate my clients, to help my clients persist over time, 
and to to know how to work with the mindset side of things. Oh, that is very that cool. Might be the, I mean, that might be the best intro ever. That was yeah, I think so. Like that that arc of development too, of going yeah. from going from everywhere that you've been and working with addiction and working with people who have uh, mental impairments and then getting into sports psychology. That's a really cool thing too, because there's definitely got to be a whole lot of stuff that you can take from each one to apply to people who are in sports psychology, um, which is also a fascinating field to study on its own because it's so new and it seems to be one that's starting to gain a lot more popularity. And there seems to be a lot of people who are looking more for like sports psychologists now, as opposed to when they were treating like even two, three years ago, treating it like they were, everybody was treating therapy back in like the nineties where it's like, no, nobody goes to therapy. That's stupid. Don't do it. <laughs> So it's, it's, that's cool to hear that like there's, there's been a path. So what got you into doing sports psychology and what made you decide that that was the one you wanted to kind of like settle on for now? Well, I was an athlete as a kid um, and school was hard for me. I was not like great in the classroom. I was not a great student, but I was great on the playground and any physical activity there was, I was good at it. So I think like many people who are listening, I just had athletic bones and played a lot of sports. And I knew I loved psychology, but when I first went to college, I was thinking about industrial organizational psychology, you know, psychology in the business world. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a psychology professor who would come to my um, athletic competitions. I played a fall sport in college. And so she was coming to my games and she's like, hey, do you ever you want to write a paper on sports psychology? And my brain like just exploded. It's like the first time that you hear that there's cookie dough ice cream, you know, like how could sports and psychology exist together? And so because I was an athlete and because I knew I loved psychology, but didn't know what flavor of psychology I loved, I really attached to that very strongly because it, it, it really embodied both of my identities really mm -hmm. that were developing at that point in time. So I did some, a couple poster presentations. And um, after I graduated, I did a little bit of consulting work with the New York Giants for player selection. And then when I got into the graduate program at BU, I started working with athletes and teams. And I liked performance enhancement, but I missed the, the therapeutic part of like getting down further into the onion, yeah. you know? So it, performance enhancement, I wanted to address all the things, not just the golf swing or the team cohesion. And what I found is my real passion and my love was understanding what makes people tick, like what, what drives people, what motivates them. And I leaned more and more towards exercise psychology and motivation and wellness and healthy habits and how people change behaviors. And also I was working full-time as an addictions counselor. So I was every day living people trying to change themselves in ways that are really hard and just how hard it is to change even when the stakes are high. So whether you're trying to stop using heroin or you're trying to stop eating Oreos at night, the struggle is real. There's like a universality to all humans struggle um, to change themselves. And so that really moved me more in the direction of overall motivation and, and how to help people really harness the drive inside of them to pursue their own goals and dreams. So I do work with some athletes, but my athletes are athletes with issues. So it's not just working on performance enhancement. I mean, occasionally I have a client, 
but they know that like I'm not just staying in the lane of let's just talk about your performance on the field. Usually there are athletes who are having problems with anxiety or depression or a relationship or have a trauma history um, or something else is going on that is that is interacting with their performance to cause problems. And then on the fitness side of things, it's all, you know, focus on motivation and helping people change. Yeah. So do you find, this, this is super interesting. So I have a, a master's in IO. Yes, um, I heard. Congratulations. I think that's recent, right? Yeah, yes. About six months ago. I awesome. Finished. So my, my, uh, my, my loan payments just started. So I know I'm like, I'm that yeah. far. Congratulations. Off <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm official now, but yeah. so that, I mean, that's, that's always, and again, it's fascinated me as well, just because I was, I think that classic athlete who had a lot of anxiety and depression and just like probably performance issues related to those things right. uh, a lot of the times. And, okay. you know, obviously when you're 18 to 21, you don't understand what's really going on uh, so much, but so that, I think that kind of drew me back into it and hearing you talk about working with athletes and kind of focusing on the we'll call it the on-field stuff versus all the other stuff, right? Do you, do you see that there's a time where those things aren't interconnected really? Or, or do you kind of see a lot of the time that, you know, one is symptomatic of the other, or there's at least a cyclic relationship kind of happening there? Mm. So I have my view and my view is bias, and I think they're all related. Mm. However, I have many a colleague and people I went to school with who are like, we don't need to peel back the onion, like, and we don't want to peel back the onion. You know, mm -hmm. we don't want to do clinical work. We want to focus on their performance. And so I think there's a, a place for that. I've definitely, you know, over the years met many people who are like, I have a thriving practice where I just do performance enhancement. I don't really pop the hood and get underneath there. And, you know, those people think of themselves more as like performance coaches or mental skills coaches. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that there's a place for that, especially when people don't want anybody up under the hood, yeah. <laughs> when they're either not yes. ready for that, or, yeah. you know, sometimes there might be a client who has like a pretty intense trauma history who just, they don't want to go there. You know, mm. they just want to focus on the here and now. Mm -hmm. And um, that's not how I work, but I think that, you know, just like in dating, there's some therapist or some helper out there for everyone, no matter what their needs are. Would would that be potentially something that you could almost look at, like if you're designing a therapeutic plan for a, for a client, would that be something you could almost look at like building out like a macro cycle for a, a training client, right? Where you're looking at as people are getting closer to events, that's where you start removing and like stop, stop peeling back the onion and start going with the layers back on it and start focusing more on the actual sport and the task itself. And specificity. Yeah. Right. And then as soon as they get out of season and they're in the off season and they've got more time being able to start peeling back and then start working through other issues like that too. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you thought of doing? Yeah. Again? That's such a good question. And you're really touching on the heart of this, this conversation about what's performance psychology mm -hmm. and what is, um, clinical psychology mm -hmm. and mental health work. So sometimes when you're trying to help someone with their performance, you're really not helping them with their mental health. Yeah. So if you take nutrition, for example, sometimes when people are preparing for a competition, they feel like shit. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Them feel like shit. Most of the. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> so you could argue that sometimes those two goals are in conflict yeah, with absolutely. one another. 
So someone, so say for example, a psychologist is hired to help a team improve their performance. The client is really the team the and team the outcome itself. is to improve the performance. It's not to improve the mental health of mm -hmm. the people on that team. And in fact, it may be a bad idea to, to open up the hood and to yeah. peel back and to get into things that might be triggering or might cause somebody to spiral and might hinder their performance. And so as you were talking about macro cycling, it reminded me of trauma work because in trauma work, the first thing you do is make sure the person is grounded. Mm -hmm. So what that means is the individual is safe and actually strong enough to be able to incur the stress of doing trauma work. So you wouldn't take somebody who's like right at the end of really leaning out and getting ready for a competition and then say, all right, let's give you a big nasty deadlift se session and let's pound you, pound you. No, because what are you going to do? You're going to injure them. So when you're working with someone in trauma, you have to make sure they don't have an upcoming stressful event mm -hmm. and they're actually healthy enough to be able to tolerate talking about, thinking about, and feeling tough stuff. So just the same way you're thinking about macros and stressors and what's the context and what are their goals, the therapist is thinking about those things too. So there are times with athletes when we're focused on performance, yeah. this is what's coming up. And then there's times when we're going to do a piece of work that is not during preparation for a competition. Yeah. That has to be a really cool way to have conversations with clients too and build a lot of trust and accountability because it's like, hey, listen, I understand that what you're talking about right now is important, but it kind of falls under that not urgent, but important category, right? Where it's like, yes, no, we will eventually cover this thing. But right now you have a game on Saturday. We have to get ready for the game on Saturday. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think a lot of athletes understand that. They understand sure. that they need to get in the zone, that for they sure. need to be in a certain mindset. So compartmentalization is not a tough sell, especially for experienced Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I think it would be like, it'd be work great because it's just one of those things where like they, they get it and they're like, I need to get my head out of this. Mm -hmm. yeah. And body competitors over in recent years, because I love strength training so much, I've, I've had more people who are in body competitions of some kind. And, and at first they might come in and want to go gangbusters and want to, you know, talk about really tough stuff. And, and I'm always like, can we talk about what's going on with your training and what's going on with your competitions. I've had a few power lifters too. I'm like, we need to periodize how we're working together to make sure mm -hmm. that you can still have performance success and, you know, make some gains on the personal end of things too. And I think because I'm able to talk about it in a strength training kind of way, that it's an easier sell for me. Than Absolutely. That not familiar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I like that carryover a lot where, yeah. you know, again, we're, we're very bit like we relate business planning, the programming and periodization for it. We relate everything to training terms as often as possible for, for our group. We used so. to, we used to not. And like everybody would just be sitting there like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. Yeah. Like you want to look at your business, like you're designing a year plan for a client. They go, Oh my God, this oh, is amazing. Makes so much sense. Right. It's just and a that is a psych skill. That is a yeah. psychological skill that you're applying to help somebody do better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely a fan of that. And I, the way you laid that out, I think is also very interesting. And even the part that I think caught me was like the, the compartmentalizing and because mm -hmm. a lot of the, a lot of the athletes that I've worked with, again, from a training perspective, not from a, a clinical perspective at all, but just from a training, 
they actually struggle with getting out of the compartmentalization and letting go of the zone more yeah. so than actually getting into it a lot of the times. So I think that is even maybe sometimes a different conversation or reverse engineering in that process for a lot of people who are heavily into the specificity of their sport, maybe. Would you say that you find that that, just to kind of piggyback on that one, you, would you find that that happens, to, happens more with people who compete in individual sports versus team sports? I'm thinking about that and how to respond to that. And the question you're asking is, I might need you to rephrase it, but I think what you're asking about is how to work with someone who has a hard time actually popping the hood yeah. and getting in and doing some deep work. And getting out of the compartmentalization. Yeah. 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 You know, when I was younger, I would push and I, I thought that it was the right thing to do to get people to get there. And over the years, I've learned that even if somebody's coming to therapy and says they want to work on stuff, doesn't actually mean they're ready. Um, mm. So I have learned to become much more observant and see when I need to slow my role. Because like most people who help people, I'm like ready for the action stage. Like, yes, let's help you change right now. Mm -hmm. Um, with those folks, I have learned to heed their own ambivalence or their own caution about diving into things. Sometimes it's because they need to get to know me better. Sometimes it's because they need to know that they're going to be able to recover from that and not injure themselves and not put themselves in a headspace where they don't feel good for like three, four, five, six days. So sometimes we just have to do some education around that. Like if we were to talk about this, what would that be like? And what could you do after? And what would help you to recover? And what might you expect? And we've got to do a lot of kind of caretaking around that so that they actually know what the recovery might be like. Um, and to respect their ambivalence about that. Like I hear you saying, I want to talk about this, but, but then when I bring it up, you really don't want to talk about it. And just seeing what they can tell me because probably they're afraid, just like when you work with an athlete, if they've got an old injury or a sore spot, they might be doing something to keep from activating that muscle or to keep from getting into that joint that's really bothering them. So it's important to, I think, slow down and respect that and then see how you could actually address that and yeah. work with that. I don't know if I wandered away from what you were no, actually. No, I, I think that... I think that's a, that's definitely a good and like a good description of it. Cause I, that is something I think we see a lot in the training world too, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's, you know, it's again, especially for like the people that are, that are listening to this, like, you know, obviously like, you know, weight loss is a huge part of like the general population demographic. And we have a lot of people that come in and they want weight loss. I'm right? ready like to go. Kyle. Help me lose weight is right. But the actions don't always match the intentions right away. And I think that is something that a lot of trainers get frustrated with because they don't quite understand it maybe. Uh, but how you just described it from a psychological perspective, I think is perfect where it's just like, you just kind of have to meet that person where they're at, encourage them, educate them, but also just understand that they might like getting to you was a, a big first step, right? Like they might not be ready to dive all the way into the pool. They just drove to the pool and, and they're going to watch and kind of hang out a little bit before they get comfortable going in. And, and that's something that I think, again, just from a, an urgency perspective or a timeline perspective, trainers have to understand it's like, Hey, you're here. 
so we can start making progress but we we don't have to like dive in the deep end right away like i can i can meet you where you're at from that perspective and um i I think how you describe that there is a huge um just carry over to what a lot of coaches see on a day-to-day basis with the people they're working with yeah and you are touching on the number one reason why I have been welcomed into this industry and in this into this field is because the client's ambivalence to change kicks coaches' asses mm-hmm. because coaches are ready for action. And actually the action stage of change is only 20% of the process of change. So like you said, somebody might sign up and give you their money and say, I'm ready to go. I'm ready for fat loss, but they're actually in contemplation stage. <laughs> They're actually like, that's one of the ways they're preparing themselves is to sign Mm -hmm. up with you, but it might be another six months until they're ready to cut the shit with the Oreos, Mm -hmm. you know? And that's not because you're doing something wrong as the coach. And that's not because they're a bad client, quote unquote. It's just because of what's going on with their own ambivalence and their own process. And I think when coaches get frustrated by that, it burns them out. You know, they Mm -hmm. wonder, is it about me or my programming? or they get aggravated and have negative thoughts and feelings toward their client, which is Mm -hmm. totally unhelpful for the relationship. Instead of thinking about it as this is the person's ambivalence Mm -hmm. and they have good reasons that they want weight loss and they probably have pretty good reasons why they want to continue eating the way they're eating. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I hadn't really thought about it that way. Like that, that's, I, that's a big light bulb moment. I think I, I definitely hope that people are kind of understanding that and, and hearing that as well. Yeah, um, I think Matt, it's, kinda, I think, it, go ahead. I'm sorry, Kyle. Oh, Matt, Matt was talking, oh. but, but his mic stopped, I think. Oh yeah. We can't hear you, Matt. Oh, it's all right. We're just gonna have to talk without him. That's it. Okay. Don't worry. No, we can't no, hear you. Matt. No. Hmm, something happened with the microphone. This is, Matt's at a workstation. That's okay. Um, we'll let him kind of figure what that out. What I will say bit. while Matt is dealing with his issue is this is the reason why I created a continuing education course mm-hmm. is because I think there's so much turnover in the industry and there's so much burnout. And in the field of psychology, like being trained as a therapist, so much of my education and training was about what feelings come up for me and who am I and what are my issues that are going to affect how I practice and how I work with clients. And I, that just really doesn't exist for personal trainers. They don't get that education and there's no support for you guys. So you're just out there giving 110% working all hours of the day and night. You're supposed to get results for your clients, which, which is a crazy thing to think because they're the ones who have to do the work. So it's so, it's like a setup for you to take everything they do personally and to really be personally invested in their results but then you have no control over their readiness to change or what they eat or how they train or whether or not they do what you're telling them to do. Am I back, Kyle? Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, sweet. Okay, good. Because I had a question about this. So when you, when you work with a coach who is dealing with an ambivalent client, what are some of the conversations that you, you give the coach to have with the client to number one, prevent that burnout on the coach's end, yeah, but number two, also prevent the frustration on the client's end. Because I've personally dealt with this before where I have clients who are coming in with monumental weight loss goals who are clearly in the contemplative stage because they're still texting me that they went out for lunch and had some drinks or they went out for dinner with some friends and they did all this stuff or like I had some cake 
And it gets frustrating on everybody's part because they start looking at it as I'm not losing weight. And I start looking at it as, as I'm like, I'm not doing my job with them too. Right. So what do you, what kind of conversations do you give or tools do you give coaches to have conversations with their clients to kind of reframe expectations and get them more on the same path? Yeah. I love this question. And so one of the things you're talking about right now is what we call a parallel process. So there's like what's happening for the client, what the process is for them, what's going on for them psychologically. And then there's what's going on for the coach in relationship to that client's process. So both people, you're describing two different people who are going through some stuff and feeling some feelings of frustration, aggravation, what am I doing wrong? And so your question to me is like, what do you say to the, what about the coach? Like, how do you help the coach? And then how do you help the coach to then help the client? Mm -hmm. See how there's like two different. Yeah. There's steps. Levels that we're yeah. working on there. Yeah. So if I'm talking to a coach and they're talking about it first, I want them to tell me, I encourage them to like be that guy. So tell me like, what does this guy say to you? Like, what does he do? Um, Cause if you say the world role play, everybody starts feeling weird immediately. So I'll just say, be that guy. And talk to <laughs> so as people are doing it and coaches really care, you know, nobody's in this field to make billions of dollars. So I'll start to see their emotion and I'll start to see their frustration. Like he tells me he wants to lose hundred pounds and then he drinks 18 IPAs every single freaking weekend. And da, 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 da. so they'll, he'll start explaining with like emotion and, some of that is the coach's emotion and some of that is the coach has taken on responsibility like it's my job to get results for this guy so coaches often will start feeling their clients feelings for them this feeling of like angst and frustration and god damn it why can't i make this work i'll say to the coach are those your feelings or are those the client's feelings because who is the only person who can control whether or not this guy loses weight right so first we just do a little check. Like you feel so passionately, you feel so strongly, you feel so much ownership. Who is really the person who has ownership? So first I wanna make a little space for the coach, like clear that compartment out. What shit is yours and what is theirs? And the feelings of angst and frustration and ambivalence that are not the coaches, let's let go of and give it back to the client because that is energy and energy is motivation that is going to drive behavior and keep it persistent over time. So in other words, if your client's like, yeah, you know, I just drink a bottle of champagne every weekend and eat all the chips and salsa with my girlfriends and I don't know why I'm not getting results. And you're hemming and hawing and screwing around with the macros and getting all frustrated and thinking, what am I doing wrong? That one's not feeling any of the motivation to change and you're feeling it all. Mm -hmm. So first I talked to the coach about what's going on? Have you taken on anything? What can you actually change and what can you not change? Then, all right, let's think about this client together. And then what I try to do to help them reframe how they're thinking about this client is I try to hear what the polarity or what the ambivalence is for the client. So on the one hand, they want a hot body. On the other hand, they love drinking margaritas with their girlfriends. And if I can somehow, and then the coach might say to me, they love spending time with their girlfriends because it's a break from being at home with their kids and 
they're having trouble with their husband. You, you coaches like know as much as a therapist mm-hmm. knows, right? You take oh, yeah. on all of this stuff. More oh, yeah. than we want to. I've, right. I've been told exactly. by so many clients, don't tell my partner this. And I'm like, I oh. don't want to hear this. Don't tell me this. you're taking on all of this load. I mean, think about how much load that is psychologically speaking, right? That is not <laughs> what you're there to help them with. Yeah. And it's just increasing how much you want to help them. It's help you're taking on all their stuff. Mm-hmm. So then they're not carrying that load. It's taking the focus off of the goal. And I always like to quote Dan John, the goal is to keep the goal a goal. You know, mm-hmm. that doesn't need to come from Freud to be really psychologically mm-hmm. valid. Um, but if I can help the coach get to a place where they're like, yeah, like, this client is like in a tricky spot. They, they spent all this money. They spent all this time. They've yo-yoed 18 times on diets. That sucks. But they're coming to me and they're doing some stuff. If I can help the coach get to a place where they're free from the frustration and resentment and they can identify with the struggle or the polarity, AKA the ambivalence, that helps them get in a good situation to then be able to coach the client because the next time they see the client, when the client comes in and says, yeah, I, I was weighing and measuring and counting on my macros and I was doing great Monday through Friday, but then Saturday I freaking blew it. And after I ate two pieces of pizza, I was like, F it. And I ate six more. So I ruined the whole thing. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Instead of the coach taking all that load on, they can keep the load on the client and say, man, so it sounds like you worked so hard all week and now you're really beating the shit out of yourself because you enjoyed yourself over the weekend and you kind of got black and white thinking about it. That sounds hard. That's a great statement. So I'm not, (laughs) I'm not judging it. I'm not solving it. All I'm doing is on the one hand, this, on the other hand, that with an understanding, like I get this part and I get that part. Because if you do that and then you just leave it and you don't do the client's work, they then have to go, yeah, but I didn't need to eat all that pizza. Like I really want the weight loss more than I want to let it rip every weekend. So they, if you let them hold the ambivalence, that time under tension will lead them in the right direction. If you just take the load off, then they don't, they're not under any kind of tension to have to lean one way or the other. And I think we, as people helpers, have a hard time. We want to help, so we want to take the load off. But any personal trainer here, you know, if your client is trying to do an overhead press, would you start pushing up the dumbbells? No, you would not. <laughs> you, would, you would let them carry the load because that's how they're going to get stronger. So that is true in strength training, and that is true psychologically speaking as well. That is, that's powerful. Like, yeah, that's that was something- a great statement one of the things that we hear the most about, you know, just from the coaches that we work with, and then Matt and I have both been in leadership positions in various companies as well. And we do a follow-up question about leadership questions after you're done. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, like trainer burnout is a huge, just thing like in the, in the field, right. It's definitely a situation that we, we hear about a lot. People talk about it a lot. It's, it occurs frequently, and, and it's not from, you know, training 60 sessions a week and being, and it's not from physical exhaustion no. you know, for the most part, it's from emotional exhaustion. And I think that's something that, you know, when people get into this industry, 
they're really, you know, they love anatomy and physiology. They love training theory. They love all these things. They want to help people. They don't understand the emotional toll that we typically end up taking on just inherently, you know, and kind of what you're describing here is, is a very good solution to that because yeah, just talking to trainers throughout my entire career and, and feeling it myself for sure. Yeah. Having been there for years. <laughs> is you take on all of the problems and, and like, you know, even what Matt said, it's like, and what you said, you know, everything about your client's lives, you know, the things that you, you shouldn't know, you know, things that their partners don't even know sometimes. Yep. And, and it's like, you get unloaded on because you're this like kind of unbiased third party that has no real other associations in their lives. So it's like, you just that get they this. see three to five times. Yeah. A week. <laughs> you, you get all the venting that nobody else like gets. And yeah. that's, that weighs people down, I think in this industry a lot. And, and yeah. that, what you just described as far as like kind of how to circumvent that a little bit and have conversations in it, the parallel with like, yeah, like the, the, the lifting and the spotting is a, is a good visual as well, yeah, because absolutely. That, yeah, you can't solve all their problems for them. Right. Because then that also takes the accountability off of them and the work off of them. I think that's, that's big. I, I really absolutely. like how you, and that, that is what's going to get them stronger, right? Yeah. Like them, having the load and bearing the time under tension and getting the reps in is mm -hmm. what actually is going to lead to whatever hypertrophy, weight loss, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. The same thing is true. And I just want to uh, like underline something really important you just said, which is you're, you're seeing them one, two, three times a week. And what you're doing is you're giving them a hundred percent of your bandwidth. Mm -hmm. When do people get that? This, this is such a precious commodity you're looking at them you're listening to them you're like thinking about their joints you're curious about what they're eating like who gets that much attention yeah. my five-year-old doesn't even get that much attention mm -hmm. so it's such a precious thing that human beings don't get a lot of and so it's not like a nefarious i guess like goal they have to like unload and vent on you oh, but yeah, like there you are you're looking at them you're paying attention yes, to them you absolutely. care about them you're safe like you want the best for them it is a setup <laughs> for yeah. you to get god only knows what when the floodgates yes. open now i have a follow-up question with that one too because as somebody who has been in management and then left management to become a coach again yeah you also get that coach burnout on both ends so you get it from clients and then you get it from management who looks at your programs and looks at data and goes why is this person not changed in uh. six months so how do you then as a coach communicate what you just communicated with the client to a manager Good. who is just looking at objective numbers and doesn't have any idea what's going on with the person at all Good. or doesn't even know who they are yeah this is a great question and something that must piss off every coach everywhere who has to furious about it for years management. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, even leaving management. I mean, look, yeah. at, look at that. So one way that I encourage coaches to, to try to frame how they're working with someone when they're getting frustrated or aggravated, or when they're feeling like, how am I going to explain that there's no result is to start thinking like a scientist and that everything that is said and done in sessions and reported to you is data. And then what you do is observe and describe the data. So in other words, yes, I've been working with this client for eight weeks and they have not lost weight. When they came in, they identified their goals as 
you know, stopping snacking in between meals and not getting up to eat in the middle of the night and coming into train three days a week. They have been pretty consistently coming into train, which has been great, but they've, they really have not been able to change their eating behaviors. And so that's something that they're really stuck on that we've been talking about during check-ins um, and hopefully we'll continue to work on moving forward. So you're not judging the client, you're not accepting any blame, you are observing and describing what has been happening. And what I would always go back to is what are the behaviors that the person is doing and is not doing? What are their stated goals and where's the discrepancy, where's the ambivalence? Now, some managers, especially managers who have never coached people, maybe they don't care or they're not gonna listen, but really that's all you can do. Mm-hmm. If it's a toxic environment that is pressurizing you to just get results and who cares about the rest of it, you're probably not going to last in that yeah. environment because it's an unhealthy environment. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, just lay out the facts, right? Yeah. Like, I think that's a, a, again, that's, that's a great way to kind of look at it. And yeah, and th- that's always the thing too, is like that coaches have to understand that that manager that might be giving them a hard time, right. For, for that is, they're they're also being managed by yep. somebody and that shit is that rolling person, downhill yeah, hard. That, that's that right. Exactly. Also that's being managed. And, you know, and I think that's something like I, I remember my my boss way back in my box gym days just literally looking at me and say, Hey, we're all just a box on somebody else's Excel sheet at this point. You know, and that's something <laughs> I, I kind of took to heart. I was like, Oh, that's so, so sad. Uh, you know, and, and I think that's where coaches just need to understand that it's like, you know, at the end of the day, it is about your relationship with your client and how you're helping your client. And absolutely, Bingo. There, there is a business side to fitness. It is a service, obviously, that we get paid to do. But if you're producing results and you're having a good relationship with people and you're understanding where they're at and meeting them that and encouraging, you know, their, their progress, like everything else kind of falls into place most of the time. If you look at it the other way, that does not happen, you know? And I, I think a, a lot of coaches lose sight of that just because of the business pressures and a lot for of sure. environments. Yeah. Um, for sure. And that's, I mean, when Matt and I talk to coaches, that's honestly one of the biggest uh, ancillary benefits. I think when we talk to coaches who go from like more of a, a box gym employee world into like a contractor oh it's the best independent world oh is, yeah yeah is they no longer have to deal with monthly sales goals and business yep. plan like their clients just come in they renew and they need to renew and whatever and the and pressure is start, all on them yeah, and they can they, start they, doing they, things like this now yeah they, they don't have the pressure to do those things and i think yeah. that yeah the psychological load that, that yeah. probably comes off at that point is, is probably pretty big too so yeah Mm-hmm. there's a lot of nuggets in there yeah there's nothing there's nothing worse than doing like 140 sessions in a month and being told that nobody did enough and everybody was failing this month it's like i don't know what you're talking about i crushed it <laughs> yeah. but y'all are terrible every single person here yeah <laughs> and i yeah. i really appreciate what you just said about the most important instrument or tool or aspect of your of the training is the relationship that you have with the client um so in, in psychotherapy, there is research to support that, that whether you use CBT or DBT or psychoanalysis or whatever type of therapy you use, it doesn't matter as long as the rapport and the relationship is good. That's the most significant indicator that there's going to be a good outcome. So I don't have that same 
information in the world of coaching, but it's my belief. And I'm glad it's yours too, that the same is true uh, in, in personal training. Oh yeah. I, we talk about and And this is something that I've struggled with, with peers, I, I think throughout my career is, you know, coaches, it's strange. I don't know if it's a self-selection process, but coaches tend to be very um, analytical and kind of empirical. Like mm. we like, we like numbers. We like to measure things. We like to contrast things. Yeah whether we're talking about weights or calories or whatever, right? Everything's numerically based. And we struggle with emotional connotation and how people perceive mm -hmm. sessions, what people's expectations and beliefs are going into sessions and how those kind of, again, form how they feel about the results that they're getting, right? And because those things are qualitative, they're not necessarily quantitative. They're very hard for us to measure which probably limits our ability to control them, right? And I think coaches have a hard time not having control of those things in my, again, in my general experience. And we, we get these conversations where coaches are talking about, oh, you don't have to like training. You just need to be disciplined to do it or whatever, right? And I think that's, that's something that, you know, we, we talk a lot about kind of like motivation versus discipline and how one probably precedes the other. And and coaches on, often talk about discipline and training, but the, the real issue is like coaches love training and they're motivated to do training. They're not necessarily disciplined to do it all the time. And most of our clients don't necessarily love training. It's something they need to do. Right. Uh, you know, so it's like the, it's like the, the motivation discipline conversation is completely skewed. Right. And it's like, you don't under like, your beliefs and expectations are very different from your clients. Like how do you navigate that process and understand where they're coming from and how to make a session enjoyable enough that they keep coming back and actually apply intention to what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in therapy, we call that doing the dance, which is like this very qualitative soft art form of trying to meet your client where they're at and also progress them, move mm -hmm. them along, help them get out of their own way. And that, I think that process is so dynamic and so different from client to client. Mm -hmm. um, and so coaches are constantly switching how they're communicating, mm -hmm. how they're programming, how they're coaching. It's really amazing when you think about how, how dynamic the work is um, and how much coaches probably have to pivot and change themselves over the course of a work day. Um, so the audience who's listening, you already have a lot of really good skills at that. And the more you practice and the more you have different kinds of clients, the more skills you develop at just kind of intuitively knowing how to do that. And I think this, I think even saying motivation versus discipline is an argument. I think about discipline as a different type, a different quality of motivation, yeah. because I guess you could say like, I'm disciplined to train, but I want to do it. I do it because I value the outcome as being meaningful and congruent with my goals and my values. So in self-determination theory language, we call that an identified regulation. So some people would say I'm disciplined, but it just basically means like I'm motivated to do it because I want what's at the end of that. And the way that I got to identify that as an important outcome is by having a lot of great uh, enjoyable experiences by having good results, by seeing myself change. So good things have to happen along the way to get to the place where you're disciplined. You can't just like 
up and become disciplined. So there's always a place for fun and enjoyment and liking what you're doing, even if it's on the way to becoming a more disciplined um, client or person. Yeah, that that coincides with one of the books I recommend to a lot of coaches, which sometimes is a little, it might be a little bit too, too in the weeds for someone, but um, Lisa Barrett Feldman's How Emotions Are Made is is a big one that I recommend to a lot of coaches as far as creating positive connotations that that kind of go along with the training process. Because as people start uh, associating positive outcomes with positive emotions, like mm-hmm. that's where you're really going to get people kind of rolling through with adherence and coherence and kind of all those other those behavior change processes that we're looking for. And, um, and again, it's like, you don't learn that through like programming and periodization so much as you just learn that with interacting with people and, and constantly getting feedback from them even, you know, so this is, this is a good segue to the, the second thing that we definitely want to talk about. And, and that's the, the continuing ed that you kind of offer with coaches, Mm -hmm. because that's, that's something I originally heard from our good friend, Jeb, and that I know, you know, as well. And I mean, he raves about it all the time. And he's definitely a, a huge fan. And, and, I think this is a huge opportunity for coaches to kind of, again, understand what's, what's happening beyond the X's and O's of coaching. Mm-hmm. And, and I definitely, yeah. Can you just tell us more? Like what's that process look like for your interactions with coaches from a, an education perspective? Mm-hmm. So the, the course that's out there is volume one of psych skills for fit pros. And it's the foundational things that we've been talking a lot about, which is, self-determination theory. And most people have maybe had a little exposure to that, especially if they took like an exercise science major in college or something. But I really get into the weeds of how does this apply to your clients? What's the stuff they say in everyday life in sessions that will help you assess how they're motivated and then leverage that motivation so that you can actually get engagement and persistence over time. So I spend a lot of time talking about applications of that, how to spot it, how to use it um, to keep the person going over time. The second core topic that I address is the stages of change, which we just talked about. So the process by which people change and focusing in on the fact that even though we love action and everything we learn in school, basically intervention is all focused on the action stage of change, but really only 20% of the people you're going to get as new clients are ready are in the stage of action. Um, And then how to work with people who are contemplative or who have relapsed or who are kind of in preparation but aren't quite ready to like execute something just yet. And then the third part of the course focuses on motivational interviewing and how to use those kinds of communication skills to build your own toolbox to help engage people around their motivation to change and then how to actually get them to make some commitments um, and start feeling like they are in charge of their own results. Um, and, And what I love about motivational interviewing is it really takes that pressure we've been talking about off coaches, that they have to be the ones to like inspire and motivate and get results. And really it's about the coach being more of a Sherpa and a guide and, um, somebody who's there to help, but that's going to help the client actually do the work and 
get the results. And the reason that I started with those three topics is because those are the things I most often talk about in in-services, on podcasts, and in individual consulting um, sessions with coaches, because those are the things that I think feel slippery and that cause the frustration and burnout that we've been talking about. I think I'm, I think I'm back. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, so, back. I don't know what keeps happening with my microphone, but it just keeps cutting out every single time I go to do anything. Uh, but no, those, those topics are definitely going to be ones that are, that are valuable for, for coaches to take. And I think there's a lot of uh, really good nuggets of information that you've given um, on this podcast. Like this has been, this has been excellent. Um, so Kyle, do you think it's time for our question? Cause we've gotten a lot of good stuff out of the way. So let's get to the ranting. We, we do have one. We do have one scripted question. One, one scripted. And yours we is always lie. interesting, I think, because it's, you're, you're looking at it from a few different yes. probably lenses. Yes. Um, yeah, yes. We always lie to people and we always say we don't have a scripted question and then we pop it on you at the very end. <laughs> It's, um, a, it's a white lie. It's a very, it it's a very, it's a very innocent. Innocuous. It is. Um, but if we're looking at the state of like the health and fitness industry as a whole, right. And you can look at this from any lens that you want to look at from a sports psychologist, from strength coaching, whatever, wherever you want to take this. If you want to take it in multiple paths, cause you have multiple answers, feel free. Um, but what do you see in the fitness field that just makes you the, that frustrates you the most? And what would you like to see to change that? Mm. oh we got eye rubbing if you guys aren't watching the youtube we got like she just put her head in her hands like this is going to be good i am pumped <laughs> so the there was the first thing that popped into my mind and then i started thinking about like larger scale like so let me just say the first thing that pops into my mind because we've been talking about coaches and the burnout of coaches mm -hmm. and how much turnover there's in the industry one thing that infuriates me and I just feel is so wrong is the way a lot of personal trainers are expected to work. Oh, that for their hours sure. are, can I say fuck on this show? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucking ridiculous. So I'll talk to a coach and they're like, I don't know why. Like I, I, I'll talk to coaches who are thinking about leaving the field to go into real estate or to go into something totally different. And they're like, I don't know why, maybe I'm not a good coach. Maybe I'm... And then they, they have to be at the gym at 4.30 in the morning. Mm -hmm. They have to work 4.30, 5.30, 30. Then sit around with their fingers up their nose from like 10 a.m. to like 3 p.m. And then they have to work blah, 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 until nine o'clock at night and then get up the next morning and do it again and do it on weekends and on holidays and then have last minute cancellations and not charge a fee and then and then have to be like the psychologist and the best friend. And I mean, it is outrageous. And so when I hear about ridiculous schedules that are like the split schedule or working a night and then an early morning or then working, I, like not being able to take vacation because you don't have vacation time, you don't have sick time, you don't, you don't have anything. And if you don't work, we don't get paid. And what you've been taking vacation for eight is, years. Yeah. My, started training. my favorite thing was I took a one week vacation once and it cost me about a month of salary. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how how are you gonna get longevity out of that? Yeah. You can, so that really I just feel like is something that is in like the skeletal system of fitness that mm -hmm. is just wrong. And how how are we gonna expect trainers to be their best, to stay in the field, to have longevity, and to really walk the talk if they have to live that kind of lifestyle. Yeah. Mm -mm. Yeah. yeah. 
that makes that, sense. That's a, that is a You got to sleep more huge. than four hours a night. Oh, what time did you get to bed last night, Kyle? Oh, 1130. Cause it's oh, yeah. Work. <laughs> I, and then I got up at three o'clock. Three. It's totally fine. I'm here uh, now. I mean, come on. On two grams of caffeine. Haven't seen my friends in weeks. <laughs> <laughs> And keep so your, I know you should keep your social tight social circle going though right there's probably gym owners out there who i'm making mad because i'm saying this because no. maybe they feel they need to do that in order to stay in the black and but i just it just bothers me so much For and sure. i've seen people leave the field i've seen people get literally sick either physically mm -hmm. or mentally ill from just and then, and then they have this idea that like, well, this is the way it is. So I should be able to yeah. do this. There's something wrong with me because I can't maintain this, which is just garbage. Yeah. It's, it's and the, there's no the guidance elephant for sure. Yeah. And there's no guidance. It's just like, I, I remember I had a conversation cause like Monday was my two year anniversary of quitting my in-person job. Right. And going and doing full remote stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember the, what made me quit was I went and I asked if I could make more money and get a raise. And my manager looked and went, yeah, your raise is on the floor. Go pick up another client or two. And I was like, no, 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 no. I want to make more money to do the same amount of work that I'm doing later. now. I'm already the top producer in yeah. this facility. I wanted to see if there was a way to get a raise for my production. And yeah, like I've earned this money, like I've earned $65 an hour for the last six years of my coaching career, can I get like a $70 an hour raise? And it's like, no, you can go pick up more work. I don't want to do that. Yeah. And this is just a, a bad business model. Yeah. You know, I am not a business person, but it's 2022 and everybody knows how Google and Amazon run shit. Oh, like, for sure. How are you going to keep your employers if you treat them like slaves and you don't give them opportunities to earn more money? Yeah. I, yeah. This is just ridiculous. So yeah. that I feel really strongly like we got to do something about that. Yeah. That's yeah, one that, of the reasons why we do what we do with our group mentorship yeah. of teaching people how to like scale. Yeah. And create longevity. Yeah, because like you're, I think you just mentioned, there's really nothing out there. Nothing. You, know, you learn your X's and O's in program design, and you just like spat out. Here's a shirt. Have fun. Go make right. money. Yeah. <laughs> yes. If if you don't make it, I interviewed 15 other people this week. So. Yeah, they will take your spot and yeah. all your clients, and your clients will probably forget oh. your name in a week. Like. <laughs> yeah, that that's a huge elephant in the room in the industry. Yeah. And again, you know, like I said, Matt and I have both been high-performing coaches and managers like in the box gym world especially and yeah. and it is it's it's encouraged it's martyred <laughs> it's it's but it's not rewarded necessarily you know and I think that's something where a lot of coaches like we've both seen a lot of coaches with a a lot of really good intentions a lot yeah. of potential to be very successful in the great industry. potential coaches completely right. be out of it before they even began yeah. you know just after the first two three years they're just yeah. they're working six maybe seven days a week they're working no. you know they, they're at the gym at 4 30 till 9 basically and a lot of those hours are just wasted hours they're not even yeah. making money on top of everything and nobody wants to live that lifestyle you know yeah. it ruins relation i've seen people have relationships ruined mm -hmm. on a personal level because of it yeah. Um, it, it's definitely a very toxic atmosphere for, for sure that we're, we're, yeah, this, this idea of sacrificing your, your personal life and sacrificing even your personal health is rewarded from a professional perspective. And that's, yeah. you know, it's, especially like we both worked in the New York area where people are already crazy. 
Oh yeah, yeah. They, <laughs> they they already just run on just stimulus. It would like and, step on yeah. your throat to get your job. They don't yeah. care. Yeah, you know, it, it's like it's it's uh, this atmosphere where like that's promoted from yeah. above. You know, and it, it's a, oh yeah, it just churns. You know, it's I very, remember bad thing when I first became a manager. We hired a coach that was phenomenal. She would have done so well and. The only downside was she lived like an hour and a half away from the gym. And my manager told me, he was like, well, you have to put her on a morning floor shift. I'm like, she lives an hour and a half away in the morning. We, we open at 4.45. So like, you want me to have her get up at one in the morning to get here on time? And he was like, yeah, that's just the rules. You have to do it. And it's like, you don't, like, people don't take any into consideration any of the context with this person. And like, she quit on her first one. I was like, I've been up since one in the morning. I was like, I, I'm sorry. It's out of my hands. I'm going to get in trouble if I don't do it for you. No. Yeah. yeah. Well, it seems like I fired you boys up too. <laughs> no, yeah. We're, we're, we're all in agreement about that. A, it's a <laughs> shitty thing. Yeah. Um, no, but I think that's, that's a fantastic problem. Yeah. That's, a, that's an answer we actually haven't gotten, which is awesome. No at all. Not yet. Um, Not yet where can everybody find your stuff from especially from like a con ed perspective for the because i think so my home base is my website which is drlewisconsulting.com and you can find out more about the course i'm actually going to launch a sale next month starting march 7th um so if you are interested you can check out the course and you can sign up for my newsletter and what i'll do is i'll send out the discount code and the announcement of when the sale goes on um, if you're on the newsletter, um, you can also see like other podcasts I've been on or articles I've written or products I've been involved with um, via my website. And then my baby is my Instagram feed because I try about three times a week to post and some way integrate strength training and exercise with mental health and psychology. Um, so that's fun and challenging for me. And most people who follow me there are personal trainers or coaches mm -hmm. of yeah. some kind. Um, so if you want something that's just like a little burst of information and, and kind of exercising your brain to think about psych skills and strength training together, that's a, that's an easy way to do it. Awesome. Yeah. And that's at Dr. Lewis consulting. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll get everything tagged up and yeah. okay. shared in the newsletter as well. Cause right. that's something, I mean, people ask us about that stuff all the time and we don't necessarily know where to refer people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is a good resource. Yep. And the Absolutely. course, I will say, if people are looking for CEUs, the course is approved through NASM and the NSCA Perfect. for 1.3. Awesome. awesome. Oh, that's good. For that's NSCA. awesome. Yeah, it's huge. That's, yeah. That's, uh, that's over half your annuals. So yeah. That's yeah. a good plus. And it's all, it's all online. What I try to do is put the course all into short lectures. So let's say you have like 10 minutes or 20 minutes. You can go through a lecture. They're all sectioned into modules. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of each module, there's a little quiz. Um, yeah. And then, so people finish it on their own time and they just contact me when they're done to get the certificate. So I think it's, it's pretty doable, even if you have a schedule that doesn't allow mm -hmm. you, you know, to sit down at a certain time or have a certain amount of minutes per week or per day. Perfect. Love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was great. Thanks, guys. I'm happy to be here. It's great to talk to you. And Matt, your audio is gone one more time. <laughs> uh, he, it is. But he said he said wonderful things. I'm sure. So, thank you for tuning in to Compound Performance Radio. If you liked this episode. 
please be sure to like, share, subscribe, and drop us a review. We'll see you next time.